1: Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken, episode number two one six, recorded September nineteenth, twenty fifteen. So this will be an IDW.
0: Oops, this will be an IDW episode where we finish off Khan ruling in Hell with issue number four, and then we start off. Um, just well, originally it was just a one-off, but uh, now it's a series of uh, John Burns. Strange New Worlds photo
1: novels. Yeah. But, you know, in some ways, both of these comics kind of fill in a gap in, uh, in Star Trek lore. And I, I, I do like them both. And, uh, but John Burns' Strange New Worlds does it in a very novel way. Um, which, on the one hand, is not a, a totally new thing. Because there are comics that use stills from the TV show. Uh, with uh, text bubbles in there, but mm-hmm. John is using it to do a totally new story, where the other ones were pretty much just photo novels of episodes. Right. Yep. Um, so no, very, it's very, very interesting, very creative. Right, and
0: uh, good thing they have Photoshop because he's using the heck out of it in a very
1: nice way. <laughs> right. Yeah, because these aren't just straight. Well, some cases they are they're not necessarily just straight stills from the show uh i mean he really modifies them many of them to suit the news stories needs and uh very creative very very cool right
0: i love the replacing you know a head of pike with shatner's head just so that he could have a captain in uh-huh. the old uniform and right like that. it's really cool yeah but it, we'll get into that uh later exactly so first off, we got Con Ruling in Hell Part Four, where we finish off the, uh, the the issues that we started off last week. So, do you wanna wanna go ahead and jump right into it, or do you Let's need, do, it, do we have anything? Else? Okay, no, I, I have no questions. All right. So this issue came out in February of 2011, or oh, actually January 2011. Uh, written by Scott and David Tipton, art by art and color by Fabio Montavani. Letters by Neil Yutake and edits by Scott Dunbar. So as with all of these issues, there's two covers. The first one is an art cover, which shows the Wrath of Khan era Khan leading his people into the desert. And he's pointing with a gloved hand to a promised land just behind the reader's shoulder. And then cover B is just a close-up of Wrath of Khan era Ricardo Montabans Khan. So the story starts with Khan and his Superman making preparations for war. In case you don't remember, uh, Thomas and several of the other Superman have uh, killed MacGyvers or caused MacGyvers to be killed and uh, stolen some stuff from Khan's group of people. And now they're about to war with each other. So Khan's people are forging spears and shields from the metal from the remaining shelter and the ship. Meanwhile, Tomas and his supporters are also preparing for the inevitable confrontation with Khan's supporters. While scouting for supplies, Joaquim stumbles on Thomas's group hiding in the cave systems. Joaquim rushes to go tell Khan, but he makes enough noise that Tomas is able to watch him leave. They now know that the time for war is now. Both teams prepare for war. Khan's group arrives at the cave entrance, and the two groups collide in a fury of bladed weapons and flowing cloaks in the wind. In all of the confusion, Khan slips through the ranks in search of Tomas himself. The two finally do meet up in the cave and fight to the death, which is no surprise that it is Tomas who ends up impaled on Khan's blade. With the rebellion squelched, Khan and the surviving men and women move into the caves and await their inevitable discovery. While they are moving supplies from the cargo containers into the cave, Khan snaps off an Enterprise logo and fashions a necklace from it as a reminder of Kirk's betrayal. Years later, two Starfleet officers arrive at the cargo container shelter, and they seem surprised to find it there. Khan and his men start to advance on the unsuspecting men.
1: The end. That was short and sweet. Yep. (laughs) Okay, so bottom line is you do not mess with Khan. No, he gets you. Oh, boy, he'll get you every time. And he does it pretty easily, pretty handily. Right. One thing that I didn't think was, was
0: mentioned upon is that once Tomas dies, did the rest of his supporters stop fighting and, and they're also part of Khan's rank during the movie,
1: or did, did Khan's people wipe him out completely? Um, I think Khan's people... Khan's people... Uh, Defeated Tamás's forces outside, completely separate from the death of Tamás, and 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 I think there were some things said that led me to believe that um, not everybody died, but a lot of people died of Tamás's people, and then the others were able to be, uh, you know, basically gave up. I I think I I think some of the uh, the dialogue indicated that, but.
0: Uh, I don't remember them actually saying that. I just remember uh, after he kills Tomas, they they say, oh no, they say, sir, Tomás's forces are defeated to the right. last of them. Oh, to the last of them. So they did actually kill all of them. Yeah. Hmm. How many casualties among us? And he says just uh, five fell and 13 more are wounded. So no, they killed every single one
1: of Tomás's people. Okay. Yep. Which, which seems highly unlikely. Unless, of course, when you're a Superman, you will fight to the death.
0: Ooh, as we saw in the last Man of Steel movie.
1: Uh, okay. So you're talking about Kryptonians now? What?
0: They are Superman. Oh, okay. It, they okay. did
1: have to fight to the death. Spoiler. <laughs> For those of you that may not have seen the Man of Steel movie by now. Which... I'm sure there's. I'm sure everybody listening to this, the many legions listening to this, would be uh, would have seen that movie. I hope so. I would hope so too. It was it was a good movie, but um, you know, I have some reservations. But overall, a good movie. (laughs) Okay, back to this one though. Right. So I really. Okay, so in the book. There's a panel that first shows the two forces squaring off with each other. And it's like a far-off long shot. It's kind of like a helicopter shot. Um, and you see all the people. And I kind of I like that. The only thing is, at first, when I first looked at it, I was like, man, there seems to be an awful lot of people. Um, right. I didn't know there were that many of them. I mean, certainly with the uh, Star Trek Taws budget, they couldn't show... Everybody. They only show a, showed a subset of the right. people. Um, and so I was thinking, well, is, I, I was, these guys are usually pretty, pretty accurate as to their depictions of things, these IDW folks. And I love that about these high-quality stuff, usually in alignment with the original source material. They do their, their research. But I was really not sure about this. So it almost – I didn't count everybody because it's kind of difficult to count – in a in a picture like this, uh, especially with the storm going on, but I it looked to me like there were forty to fifty people per side, which seemed like it's awfully high. Um, but then I went ahead and did some research. So back in Space Seed, McCoy scans the Botany Bay and he claims there's sixty to seventy bodies on the ship. So was like oh interesting okay, and then into Darkness, in that movie. Uh, There were 72 missiles, and supposedly each missile was loaded with a person. So, um...
0: In this miniseries, in the first issue, when we had that flashback of uh Khan leaving, he says
1: he was only able to take 84 of his people. Oh, 84. Oh, interesting. Mm Hmm. Hmm. Oh, how... Okay, so there's yet another number. Huh. Okay, so I only watched Space Seed to the in the beginning when McCoy said uh 60 to 70 bodies. So, later in that episode, did they actually state a real count? That was 80 something? I don't know. Hmm, interesting.
0: But uh, it could be that he had 84 to begin with and then not all of them lived through the through the centuries. I don't I don't remember if that
1: I kind of remember that, but I don't oh, know yeah, if that's like... actually in the show.
0: Okay, so some, some of, the, of them might have died.
1: Right, so some of the compartments failed. Yeah. Kind of like the sole female crew member on the Planet of the Apes, of the Apes. Uh, ship, <laughs> right. right? One out of four, and it happened to be the woman. Damn, there goes Eve. Anyway.
0: Uh, yeah, do yeah, you think so. she knew that that's what her goal was
1: in that movie? I... Uh, I would really I really would hope that that possibility would be uh, she would be aware of that possibility (laughs) (laughs) I mean hopefully she isn't dumb it's like at least think of the possibility if they didn't actually explicitly talk about it okay everybody contingency plans let's say we're stuck on a planet and Mm -hmm. uh, but even with two people you don't have enough genetic diversity to actually create a you know, a, a viable
0: up. gene pool? Of, no, you would have exactly. one generation, and then they would start going south.
1: Right. Yeah, you'd have a lot of people playing banjos on the porch. So. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. What, what? Nothing, what? Nothing. Deliverance. What? I uh, know the show. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, yeah. So, go ahead. You have,
0: you have so, you a comment. No, yeah. So, your, uh, your comment. Yeah, so, it does seem like a lot of people. Let's say there's 40, then that means... Only maybe four people died or whatever since they've been on the planet, which seems unlikely. Well, we know. it Seems like it would
1: be more. Yeah. Plus, we know those people were uh, that were that had the earwigs go in their head. Yeah. We know some of those died. And the plants killed a couple of people and right. probably those other animals. Uh, exactly. The, the main thing is, I just was a little surprised by the numbers. The numbers appeared quite high. Right and and they look evenly matched so Khan's men were able to kill
0: all of those men and only four of Khan's men were killed right
1: that also seems unlikely because they're all genetic supermen exactly but they just were and the idea that Tomas was able to sway that many of them right seems... yeah I was thinking that
0: his group was a lot smaller than
1: that right well it's a good thing it was an even fair fight yeah yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, think about how easily they would have been defeated if it wasn't.
1: Exactly. Okay, I thought it was pretty quick. I thought they I thought they ramped up their ability to forge metal pretty quick. You know, to make the swords and stuff.
0: Well they 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 had that in earlier episodes or earlier issues. Did they? I don't remember yeah, they, that.
1: They had spears earlier. Well, okay, but okay, fine. So they had metallurgy going already. And they had already gone out and dug up all the uh, all the metal and raw materials to make that much stuff. I thought they were cannibalizing the ship. Well, they only did that for the for the um, for the for shields. The shields. Mm. And by the way, bringing that up, where I assume that the shields were coming like from doors or something. Uh, uh, because they did not make that clear. I mean, it was obvious it came from the um, the mater- the the boxes they were in. They were in the like like uh, yeah, the big the cargo container, container cargo boxes, right? And then the one per- the one person comes up and says, "Hey, we don't have enough uh, raw material to do the you know do the shields." And then Khan just, you know, just rips, and then they show him with this hunk of metal in his hand that just happens to be rectangular. Hey, this will make a shield. Use this. Keep doing that. But I didn't see where he ripped it off. I no, mean, he just uh, ripped it right off the wall. Oh. So if
0: you lo- look at a, like the next page, he's exactly. standing there and you see a big black hole where
1: he used to he was standing. Oh, I didn't wall. see the black hole. Yeah. Okay. So he ripped he ripped the side of the cargo container off. Right. But it yep. didn't let all the storm in. Of course not. So no, there must be would... multiple layers to the cargo container. Right. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> okay. So it's strong enough to hold out uh and be and fare better than the um than the ship than the botany bay yet it's weak enough that Khan can rip it away With from their the wall. Fingers. Now if it was a door or something fine I can dig that you just got the hinges being right. attached but right. actually ripping an entire square piece of a wall a steel wall or some kind of metal wall off that's amazing. <laughs> well, he's con. He has that glove on exactly. Uh, and but hold on, because there are times he has one glove, and there's times he has two gloves. Right, but that part he only had one. Yeah, on the cover he has two. Yep. And there are some places in the middle where he's got two. Right. Yeah, he but hasn't I get... lost the one yet. <laughs> well, <laughs> I definitely agree that. Uh, when they're forging the swords, he's got, he's got the one. Uh, yeah, he's one, right. Um, and then during the final fight, he's back to wearing two gloves, right? Right. Um, so I guess he's con and he can accessorize the way he pleases. So, okay.
0: Yep. I do like during the fight with Tomas that Tomas swings with the sword, and he's able to nah. grab it with his palms right slap them together just right so that it stops the
1: the blade blade. it's like that seems awfully uh, uh, unlikely isn't there something in space seed where khan is like doing some kind of a? don't know whether it's some kind of a contemplative um stretching exercise or something but is there something where he has his hands together and does some kind of move like that Hey, they all do the space yoga when they wake up. Oh, that's it. That's it. Space yoga. Okay, good. <laughs> and then the other thing is pretty cool uh, where um, d- d- uh, Jokum, Joakim or whatever, uh, <clears throat> calls to him during the fight, and then Khan is like, doesn't even look, and just like SWACK! Just stabs Tomas to death. That's pretty cool. Right. I am that good. I've just been playing with this sucker. But now he's dead. And now I got a conversation to can't, to start with mm-hmm.
0: yes, he is that good. He is that
1: good He is that good
0: yeah, no is that from a movie though where not a Star Trek movie, but some sort of movie where you stop a blade with by slapping your hands together just right so that you
1: <laughs> c- catch the blade before it hits you. I have no doubt because i th- I remember seeing something like that before mm-hmm. Um, I just don't know where.
0: Yeah, I remember as a kid, the first time I ever saw it was it was in a Batman comic. So somebody was swinging an axe at Batman, and he was able to just whoosh, grab it just like that. And I remember, you know, as a kid going, oh, my goodness, that was awesome. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and I know I've seen it a time or two since then, and then it's here. So I keep thinking I'm wondering if it's in some sort of martial art movie or something that they're all playing right. homage to.
1: Yeah, I don't know.
0: Or reusing an idea. Right, um, that's kind of cool. It's still cool, but man, you would have to time that just right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you ain't getting it. You'd have to be pretty stinking strong. If you're one
1: second later or one second earlier, yep, you're you're gonna get cut. Yeah. So did you notice when Khan ripped uh, that shield off of the wall mm-hmm. uh, that it made the sound Kirk K- no, <laughs> So continuing, he really hates Kirk. Yeah, or continuing in the Kirk man love theme. I don't know, but Kirk. That so, is funny. No, I did not notice yeah. that. Which is sort of the reverse of gone. <laughs> of course, Kirk and yeah, Revenge of. Right. Yeah. Got it. There you go. <laughs> Okay, so uh, so I was kind of wondering about uh, what Joaquin was doing uh, when he was at Tomasa's cave, uh, where all the insurrectionists were. So poking around. W- well, right. So I th- it wasn't clear, but it seemed like Joaquin was perhaps on the borderline of going over to Tomasa's side at points Mm -hmm. earlier in this comic series. And um, I wasn't quite sure whether he went over to the side or not. So, was he enough into Tomas's camp that he knew where the uh, cave was? Where the secret cave was? Because he went there, like, in a big storm. He didn't just find it. So I was wondering, uh, was he actually going back to the cave because maybe he was thinking he would switch over to Tomas' side? But then if that was the case, you know, why did he, why did he stop and run back to Khan? Uh, did he change his uh, mind at the last minute? I, 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 I think he was just foraging
0: for materials and he oh. just stumbled across it. That's, that's the way I took it. Mm, okay, I didn't take it that way. Uh, I mean, yeah, because going... I definitely felt like that was the first time he'd ever been there. Huh. Okay. That's why he was sneaking around and that could eavesdropping. Be,
1: that could be the explanation. Um, I, that isn't what I got from it, but it could easily be interpreted that way also. Mm. That was quite uh, lucky that he would go out in the night in the bad storm and just happen to come across that. Okay. Well, you get... You act like there's never a bad storm. There's always a bad storm. Well, no, period. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. Well, I don't act as if there's never a bad storm, but... I mean, all the more reason not to be going out alone, but... I mean, it almost seemed like he was skulking out at night. uh, And he knew where he was going, but... Mm. No, I didn't get that.
0: Oh, actually, no, I take that back. He's following somebody. So if you go back and look, uh, yeah. one person's leaving, and then he's, like, following them. So that's that's
1: what it was. Okay. Yeah. So I'm back in the comics, too. So I do see where somebody in the, uh, you know, in, in full-on leather or full-on gear with the cape, complete with cape, because you need the cape, right. is heading out of the uh, storage container where they're manufacturing all the shields and stuff. Right. So, Joachim must have seen him, and then took off after him. Huh. Okay. Yeah, and actually, Khan might, if you go back to the page before, yeah.
0: um, Khan might actually be sending Joachim after him, because they kind of share a look when he says, uh, soon will we we will enact our retribution, and then he kind of looks over at Joachim soon. Oh, and if Flint. you look, you can see a guy kind of like leaving right then. So maybe uh, they knew that this guy was... One of Tomas' people, and Joaquin followed him. Hmm. Interesting. I would not have picked that up if I uh, didn't go back and relook at it. Right. Hmm. hmm.
1: Interesting. Yes. Okay. I mean, so really, that's my. I mean, my main point about this one is, uh, like the first three issues, mm-hmm. this is fine. It's good. It it's filling in some detail. Uh, to tell us what happened between Space Seed and Wrath of Khan which is all lovely but um, really there's nothing here really surprising or groundbreaking um, it's doing a journeyman's work of just filling in the gaps right
0: yep I mean were you surprised that Khan would sit in that lazy, chair, lazy boy chair for
1: what, 10 years <laughs> grow gray, that, that same <laughs> and grow gray and everything. Right. Yeah. I that that was kind of odd.
0: Yeah. So for you who don't have the book, uh, there's a there's a page with three panels on it and each one shows Khan sitting in this uh recliner looking thing. And the first page is or the first panel, dark haired con, second second panel, chair and con's looking a little worse for wear, but he's a little grey, and then the the third panel is what we've seen in Wrath of Khan and the chairs, pretty much completely destroyed, and and Khan looks like uh, Ricardo Montalban from the movie. Right.
1: And of course, this is all after the conflict, towards the end right. of the book. Right. Yeah.
0: Yep. So one of the things I thought was weird, just because uh, of my misremembering, is uh, Khan with the necklace, the the Starfleet logo necklace. Mm-hmm. I always thought that he got that that uh, logo from. The Chekhov's captain right. that he kills. Right. I always thought that was from his belt. Ah, it's because they have that same you know circular logo as their belt buckle. Sure, that big belt and, buckle. Yeah, I always thought that that's where Khan got that necklace from. That right. he, you know. But I did go back and rewatch the movie, and and when he's putting the sandworms in their ears, he he he's is wearing his necklace already. So. Yeah. All the times I've watched Star Trek,
1: too, I always thought that's where that necklace came from. But (laughs) I was wrong. And quite frankly, I don't remember that necklace from the movie at all. That's a detail I do not remember at all. So, well, shame on me. Yeah. So what was the – so what was that supposed to be in the movie? I mean was that supposed to be – I mean, really, what was it supposed to be? It was supposed to be, oh, I killed a Starfleet guy at some other point in time, and I took the uh, <laughs> the belt buckle from him? It's like, well, what was it supposed to be? And so now they explain it here, and that's fine. Um, that's what the Tipton brothers think it is. But was that... Well, I don't think
0: he could have ever killed another Starfleet person, because this is the first people they've ever seen.
1: No, no, I'm not saying that's what it was. Right. I'm saying, within the movie, I mean, what were the authors of that book saying it was? I mean, not the book. The authors the of movie. the... The writers
0: of the movie. Yeah, I don't know. I Like I said, I always thought one thing, and
1: I was obviously wrong. And, and who knows? Maybe in writing this book, they were able to uh, maybe read some notes from the original script, or maybe even talking to the... Uh, the authors of the movie script. Who knows? Or maybe they just yeah. made it up.
0: I think they just made it up because yeah. it doesn't make sense because that's not the Starfleet swoosh from the original series. Yeah. Yeah, they never had, you know, hood ornament-sized <laughs> logos inside of a circle until Star Trek The Motion Picture. Well, you don't know that. Space-
1: I've seen enough... Well, it wasn't on the uniforms, but how do you know... It? I mean, where did Con pull... It pull, He pulled it off of one of the cargo containers, right? Or something?
0: In this in this, he did, but I, I, I don't think that it was there. I doubt it. <laughs> I doubt it, sir.
1: <laughs> okay. I find that hard to believe. Yeah, well, I'm just... I'm not saying that's what it was. I'm just trying to... I'm just trying to say what... Did the costume people just come up with that? Hey, let's put this on there. We got extra ones from the extra belt. Because it buckles. looks
0: cool. I'm sure that's what they did. This looks cool. Okay. This makes him look total
1: bad. BA. Bad butt.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess it's that and the single glove. There you go. All right. Okay. So r- real quick, not not to do with this issue, but um, I thought it was an interesting article I read um, today, actually. That was talking about all of the um, Star Trek stories and TV series and movies and stuff that got started but never never actually happened. Uh And one of them was a movie that was supposed to be Star Trek II, which would have uh, Kirk saving Carol from uh, human rebels that were rebelling against the Federation Hmm. and their conquest ways and things like that. And then come to find out that the head of the rebellion that was trying to kill Carol Marcus was actually David, David Marcus. Yeah, and then then you know Kirk finds out that David's his son, and then come to find out Khan is manipulating these humans into rebelling against the Federation. Huh. Which would have been a really interesting story. Hmm. But they they thought it was too dark for um, a Star Trek movie, so they. Then came up with another story that had to do with a, um, a super weapon, right? And then and then they ended up merging the two stories into what we know as uh, Wrath of Khan. Cool, okay. but I never heard that about the you know Khan somehow getting off the planet and manipulating uh, you know a group of humans into rebelling against the Federation. But it sounds like a pretty interesting story.
1: It does sound interesting, but I um, I just as interesting i I like what they did go with oh absolutely yeah so
0: yeah i'm not saying it would have been better i'm just saying that i'd never heard that and it it does sound like it would have been an interesting take right it would have been
1: cool all right that's all i had for this one excellent okay so we're going to be leaving conland and go into a whole new uh a new world which is uh, of John Byrne's creation. So we are going to be doing um, Strange New Worlds, which I guess was originally just a little prototype project of John Byrne's that turned into later uh, a series, but this is the first one. Um, So published date is December, 2013, photo merge and story by John Byrne created, of course, Star Trek created by Gene Roddenberry uh, uh, based on characters created by Samuel A. Peoples and the editor is Chris Ryall. It's kind of interesting that there is such a short list of people that create this comic because it really was the John Byrne show. So very impressive. The cover is, uh, the cover is a colorful retro one whose style recalls Gold Key and other comics from the 60s or 70s. Photos of Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and godlike Gary Mitchell are placed on the cover uh, within primary color cutout kind of things. Um, the Enterprise and the Klingon cruiser are near the top. The title Star Trek Strange New Worlds is in yellow toss font uh, and placed at the top. Space the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission To explore strange new worlds. To seek out new life and new civilizations. To boldly go where no man has gone before. (whistles) Captain's Log 4627.7 Lieutenant Uhura has picked up a very unusual signal from a location as yet to be determined. The signal defies conventional analysis, until Spock applies a process of elimination to determine the signal's source is planet Delta Vega. Chekhov says Delta Vega is at the galactic rim. Sulu, who has prior experience with the planet, as does other members of the bridge officers, is in no hurry to return. Kirk says they have no choice but to check it out. Set course for Delta Vega, Mr. Sulu. Weeks later, they arrive. Scotty and Sulu volunteer to be a part of the landing party. Captain Kirk thanks them, but says they are needed on the ship. Spock and Dr. McCoy will accompany Kirk. Kirk thinks to himself it's been three years since he last visited this world, and hoped a return visit would not be necessary. He is carrying a heavy burden from what happened there. He may need Dr. McCoy's unbiased eye, since he was not present on the original visit. Kirk asks Spock and McCoy to follow the source of the signal into the automated mining facility, while Kirk goes to the gravesite. Over Spock and McCoy's objections, they part company to their respective tasks. McCoy displays more knowledge of the events of the past visit when Spock, than Spock expected, given that Kirk's report was not complete and in some areas a fabrication. McCoy explains that Mark Piper, his predecessor on the Enterprise, turned over his records that included a more factual accounting of what happened. Spock asks McCoy to recount Dr. Piper's report so he can assess the completeness of his knowledge. He says it may prove critical. McCoy does so and recounts the events of the Taw's second pilot titled Where No Man Has Gone Before. The upshot of the story is that Kirk killed his best friend at Starfleet, Gary Mitchell, when Gary and Dr. Elizabeth Daner gained amazing godlike powers through the ship's encounter with an energy barrier at the edge of the galaxy. Spock says McCoy's knowledge is incomplete but sufficient. He notices the signal's characteristics have changed. It went from a jumbled, incoherent signal to being much more focused. He and McCoy set off to locate the captain and report this change. Meanwhile, Kirk is at the gravesite of his friend, Lieutenant Gary Mitchell. He is lost in thought and racked with guilt. McCoy and Spock contact Kirk via communicator to try to talk him into beaming up and use the ship's sensors to locate the source of the signal and whatever else is going on. Kirk tells them to beam up and scan for the source, but he will stay here for now. Spock and McCoy are dematerialized from the surface, but never materialize on the ship. Before Scotty can ascertain what went wrong with the transport, Chekov reports there is only one life form on the planet. What? Something else. But it's gone. There was something else near the captain, but only briefly. Scotty gives the orders to beam the captain aboard. Sula reports the ship's deflectors just snapped on. Something is in their proximity. They are being swept by some kind of energy beam. The deflectors aren't stopping it. Meanwhile on the planet, Kirk is walking and notices a change in the air. Plants begin to appear where dirt and tumbleweeds were just moments ago. Caffarian apples, one of Gary's favorites. Kirk is swept away to the bridge of the Enterprise, but it's different. Gary is here, and Kelso? it's the bridge that it was four years ago Kirk is a passenger on the reenactment train of his own past he proceeds to relive an incident where a Klingon attack resulted in a hull breach that reached the bridge Gary was sucked down into damaged lower decks and would have died if not for Kirk's selfless act of courage the reenactment ends and Kirk is swept back to the planet and accosted by Gary First, he is in a strange, shimmering form, suspended in midair. then a cloud-like form coalesces with Gary's face. Gary asks why Kirk would have saved him back on the ship, but later kill him on Delta Vega. Why? Meanwhile on the ship, Sulu is reporting the controls appear to be functional, appear to be in functional order, but when he tries to engage a change in course, he can't tell if anything is happening. Scotty suggests to use the tractor beams to pull, then push the ship. Maybe they can shake themselves loose. It doesn't work. Suddenly, sensors pick up a beam of energy penetrating the shields, then the hull. Kirk materializes on the bridge. He is alive and well, and immediately asks where Spock is. Scotty reports Spock and McCoy never came back from the surface. Kirk assumes Gary has them somehow. Scotty is happy to hear Kirk is alive, but he asks how. Kirk does not explain, but asks about the ship's power levels, and orders Chekov to Spock's station to begin a detailed sensor analysis. Chekov reports the sensors are picking up literally nothing. Kirk concludes that somehow they are in a reality of Gary's own making. They are seeing some things that are unreal and based on fragments of Gary's memory. When we see nothing, such as the nothing outside right now, maybe Gary is distracted or for some reason not manufacturing anything for them to see. Kirk says they have to think their way around this situation. Sulu tries to reverse course and leave the way they came. They find it's working, and suddenly find themselves in open space again. Mitchell's power is based on Delta Vega, and he has a limited range. They turn around and head back. Scotty beams Kirk down to exactly the spot they beamed McCoy and Spock up before they disappeared. Meanwhile, McCoy and Spock are in the middle of a reenactment of an incident on dimeris of special significance to Mitchell and the captain. Again, Gary takes a poison dart that the the rodent things on dimeris meant for Kirk and almost dies. Spock and McCoy find themselves back on Delta Vega. The same glittering form first appears followed by a more cloud-like form with Gary's face. Finally, Gary's full body takes shape within the glittering form. Spock talks to Gary of his perceptions that Gary does not have all of his memories and that Gary is confused about what he does remember. Transport complete Kirk joins them and leads the discussion with Gary. Gary remembers things, but not everything. He says he does not remember trying to kill Kirk, but he does remember Kirk at least trying to kill him. McCoy says his medical sensor readings confirm two human cadavers are buried here. One is crushed. Kirk tells Gary he did not want to hurt him, but he had no choice. Gary does not believe. Kirk suggests Gary, read his mind as he did before but for some reason Gary is no longer able to read minds. Spock proposes he could connect Kirk and Gary's minds via a mind meld that would push aside any possibility of deceit. McCoy objects strenuously but Kirk overrides. Spock prepares then completes the mind meld link between man and incorporeal God. Kirk finds himself alone with Gary on a red-filtered version of Delta Vega's surface. Gary starts to recite the chilling words he spoke three years ago. I am contemplating the death of an old friend. Gary explains when his physical body was crushed and died, his life as an incorporeal being began. The only thing that could hold his burgeoning being was Delta Vega itself. He became the planet. But the transition was hard and long. It took him a long time to get used to his situation, a long time to figure out how to call out to Kirk over the vast distances required. Gary flicks Kirk a dozen feet in the air with the slightest of thought. Kirk tries to talk sense into Gary as the peril he finds himself in becomes all too apparent. Kirk follows his intuition as he comes to the conclusion that Gary is no longer the jealous man-god that almost killed him. He has evolved beyond that, but has not fully made the transition to the fully aware, fully confident incorporeal being that can break the bonds of Delta Vega and explore what awaits him. Eventually, after that silver-tongued devil Kirk works his pep-talk magic on his old friend, Gary lets go of the last vestiges of his human existence, releases himself from Delta Vega, and passes to his next plane of existence. Goodbye, James. Thank you. The smiling face of Gary Mitchell fades to white and is gone. Kirk returns to the Enterprise to log his full and honest report of what happened to Lieutenant Gary Mitchell. Later, after Kirk's report, has been submitted and assessed by Starfleet. He is on an open channel with Commodore number one. It's Pike's former first officer, and now the representative Starfleet that understands why Kirk falsified his log. She will let the incident pass as long as he does not make that kind of false entry again. The channel is closed and Kirk leaves Spock and McCoy, who were present in the briefing room. McCoy asks Spock something that has always been bothering him. With all his amazing Vulcan telepathic powers that Spock possesses, why was he not affected when they encountered the energy barrier at the galaxy's edge? Spock asks what makes McCoy think he was not affected. The end.
0: Now that's a way to end a joke, uh, end an episode with a joke the right way. Right. That was spot on in the same vein that the TV show was always able to do
1: not always (laughs) often
0: able to do often able to do
1: some of those little jokes at the end leaving the viewer with a little little levity sometimes they fell flat on their face and were incredibly forced but most of the time they were good but it seems like every
0: time we've had it in the comic books, right. it's always been a groaner. <laughs> you know, I,
1: I can't think off the top of my head of a good of one a good one, but yeah, but this one is definitely a good one.: Oh, it's great. And another thing is, I mean that's that's exactly like a fan question. you know that, that's all, <laughs> you could see that being asked at a, at a convention at a, who wherever right you know, ESP, they had ESP and those kind of things. Well, why, you know Spock is amazing with all the things he can do. Mentally, it's like why wasn't he affected? But and I guess, well, I guess the answer is it wasn't ESP. I mean, e- Spock didn't have the ESP thing going for him. I guess. The Answer
0: is actually simpler than that. At the time in the writing, he had not had those powers yet.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Because uh, well, think about yeah. it he doesn't exp- he doesn't have any Vulcan crazy powers in in the first episode in the pilot oh, or, either pilot. Well, they
1: didn't expose him anyway. Right. Well, I'm chalking it, it up to that they didn't. He didn't have them. Hell, in the first pilot, he was smiling. Yeah, he's all happy. Hey, they're singing. <laughs> the flowers are singing. Yeah, yeah, like a little kid or something. Uh, yeah, no two ways about it. They didn't. They hadn't pulled the uh, old Vulcan mind melds or all that kind of stuff out of their orifice yet. So right. So overall, what'd you think of this book? I liked it a lot. Um It it was a little long um, But in In some ways when they go back to Demeris And the rodent things At Demeris Which by the way look more like iguanas um, You know they're they're basically Taking a reference In the original Or the second pilot uh, Where No Man's Gone Before And they're expanding on it And they're showing you what happened And in some ways that's cool But also in some ways it's like This is getting kind of long I mean, I actually, you know, had the equivalent of checking my watch as I was reading it.
0: All right, I didn't remember that being a throwaway line
1: in the, in the movie. Oh, yeah. in the episode. Well, it wasn't a throwaway, but, I mean, you re- yeah, he's got the glowing eyes and stuff, and he says uh, to Kirk, you remember those rodent things on Dimoris? I took a, I took a poison dart that was meant for you.
0: Oh, uh, okay. So... Well, does he also mention the... Uh being jettisoned into space or is that
1: completely new i i do not remember that reference at all but i mean i mean there was a a history of those two watching each other's backs but uh right yeah I, i don't remember anything specific about kirk saving gary's life but i think they might have said something about that i mean them you know kirk saving his life but they didn't go into details I don't remember that
0: so so why is Daner not not one of these incorporeal beings? Um, Cause she
1: because she didn't have as much power as he did. because Gary killed her? Okay. Uh, Gary sucked her power out of her, and then she died. I don't I don't know. Good question.
0: Mm. I couldn't remember how. Well, she was still alive after he was already dead, though, right? but she didn't have her power anymore.
1: Uh, Oh, boy. I wish I had watched the episode (laughs) before we did this recording. I thought she died before Gary died, but maybe you're right.
0: Well, don't go off me. I I haven't seen this episode in a long time, and and I'm just going off of
1: some very old memories. Okay. You are the Taz
0: expert. Yeah. That's why we got you here.
1: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah, and I don't remember. I I thought she died before the final – battle but you you may be right but the main point is she did die so um and she she died with her powers at gone or significantly weakened and 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 i thought her her glowing eyes went away before she died yeah i thought so too i couldn't remember why but gary was full power when that rock fell on him um and it, that is interesting I mean I, I like the whole thing what they're saying here is uh, even though he was incredibly powerful he was still tied to his body and when his body died um, by being crushed uh, you know he couldn't he, he wasn't able to just say oh I'm incorporeal now and just throw the rock off and or whatever and go after Kirk again I mean there was a there was a there was a a trans- transitory process that had to happen, uh, and he was not used to his incorporeal being yet, and it took him a while so I kind of liked that i kind of I can buy that. What about you?
0: No, I really liked it too, and I liked where it ended up going um for the most part yeah um, but I thought they were kind of going in a different direction at one point when he had such you know faulty memories that he could remember some things but not other things mm-hmm. about his life uh, as a human right and um what 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 it was really giving me a vibe of is swamp thing so ah. <laughs> so it so all go comes with me on, back to swamp thing go ahead so go with me on this but okay. but at one time you know swamp thing was a scientist mm-hmm. he was human and then he gets a bunch of chemicals and he blows up and he comes back as swamp thing right but uh, when Alan Moore took over the title, he changed it so that the guy, the Swamp Thing, who thinks he's Alec Holland, mm-hmm. isn't really Alec Holland. He's, he is a Swamp Thing that just happens to have Alec Holland's memories because, you know, he was formed at the same time as Holland was dying. Ah, hmm. And uh, he's, you know... Much more powerful once he finally realizes that that he can' actually you know turn into any plant and and any you know plant life on the planet, hmm. not just this hulking swamp thing walking around the swamp uh-huh. and so when 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 gary mitchell's memories were so vague and and uh you know he, he didn 't have a body anymore, but he was still able to kind of make a cloudy version of it. Mm-hmm. I was really getting the the swamp thing vibe that you know this 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 entity. Who thinks that he's Gary Mitchell isn't really Gary Mitchell. It just happens to have some of Gary Mitchell's memories and is, is you know and that's what's holding him back is that he's thinking that he's really a human with powers as opposed to just powers that thinks he was once human. Hmm. Which I don't think is where they exactly went, but right. man, they they were getting close to to that that uh, that line of thought. Which I liked. I, I thought yeah. it was great.
1: Yeah. Um it made sense. Mostly. <laughs> and uh and definitely when Gary at the end of that episode it was like, Well, if he was so powerful, I mean how, how how would that rock stop him? I mean you know couldn't he like stop the rock or make the rock deformed around his body so it wouldn't crush his body? Like oh you think about all these different things. But um I, I like what they said and I like how it ended. And even though it took <laughs> A, a Kirk monologue, the traditional Kirk monologue, to <laughs> um, make the being realize it's time to move on to the next phase. Um, I mean that's so that's so Trek and that's so Kirk, but it was a little schlocky. But whatever. It's just amazing how Kirk just figured all this stuff out and Inca- incredible t- intuition, I guess. All right.
0: And so now that Gary's free of his corporeal body he's going to go out in the universe he's going to create this continuum let's just call (laughs) it a Q continuum (laughs) which can transcend time and space right because that will be the next dimension Uh uh-huh he's now he's now conquered space next will be time Uh
1: uh-huh
0: and then uh he he ultimately will be Q
1: that's funny little did we know little did oh no who knew now that's a very interesting theory that's a very interesting theory Um, It it doesn't quite jive with what Q has said of his people's origins, but that is very interesting. And we've never seen Q lie before, have we, Ken? No, he's he's always very truthful. Mm -hmm. Well, it would explain the Q Continuum's interest in humanity. Right, exactly. It all comes down to this one episode. Exactly, so... Now, has there ever been a um expanded expanded universe story about Gary Mitchell coming into contact with Q? Not that I'm aware of. No. Get writing out there, you IDW folks, or somebody. Right. I'd I'd read that. Sure. And then what happens there?
0: So anyway, so uh I mean we we kinda talked about it at the beginning, but the uh artwork in this is Photoshopped stills from all the episodes of Star Trek, so there's a little bit of, of everything yep. in here, um, all meshed together to make a wonderful story. right and for the most part, I was never jarred out of it. I mean there was a few times when you know the coloring in the foreground looked a little odd with the coloring in the background, but
1: nothing worse than anything else we've seen in in traditional artwork, right yeah. I think, I think he did a, a wonderful job and I really like the idea that the first page was it two pages? One, I think it was one page where Byrne kind of introduced the reader to what he was doing by having his own head uh, apparently from an older photo <laughs> right. um, like when he was a teenager or maybe, maybe early 20s um, where his head was placed on a whole bunch of different interesting uh, Star Trek characters so I, I thought that was really cool uh just to explain to everybody how he did what he did. not, not that it's hard to figure out, but still. <laughs> right. But no, it was interesting that he kinda gave you a little heads up as to what's going on. Exactly. And in a humorous way. I, I think I think some of his choices were uh very entertaining.
0: Oh yeah, his head on uh on Mirror Universe Ahura was is quite funny. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and then the uh the salt vampire. Um, from uh, I think. Oh, I think okay. that, I think it was the is, third... that who that, is that who that is? Yeah, I think it was like the third episode that they that they broadcast. Uh, right. Yeah, where it's uh, the salt vampire doing Kirk? Was it Kirk? I guess so. Right. Anyway. Yeah, I wasn't sure where that that still came from. Right.
0: And but no, that, now that now that you mention it, that makes sense. Why is. Palms on the guy's face,
1: right, and then uh, which is his own face, uh, right, and then uh, of course his head on top of uh, Sulu's uh, cut fencing form was pretty good too. No, it's good. Yeah.
0: So can I uh, can I give you a little uh, uh, a little backstory on myself?
1: Uh, okay.
0: Go ahead. Many many years ago, uh-huh. uh huh, I met. The woman who ended up being my wife. Oh, nice. She's a big fan of Doctor Who, right. which I hadn't watched a lot of. Mm-hmm. And I was a big fan of Star Trek, which she liked, but maybe not as much as I did. So I, you know, being you – know, thinking that I'm creative or whatever, actually tried to do this by taking, taking screenshots from Star Trek The Next Generation mm-hmm. and – uh Tom Baker era Doctor Who mm-hmm. footage and trying to come up with a story where where it would explain the hardest being on the Enterprise D, blah 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 blah. And good God it's hard to do what what John Byrne actually did. Because uh-huh. I mean it is so hard to just to find the right the right frame sure. and then to you know take it out of the whatever you're watching it on and then photoshopping it or whatever. Uh, so my hat's off to him. I, I attempted to do it, and uh, it is very difficult. Huh. And you use Photoshop or something else? Uh, no, this actually – Paint? This is, this is
1: a long time ago. It was paint. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Even Yeah, with that tool. <laughs> That's right. great. Yeah. Like,
0: like I said – I didn't have the right tools, and I I didn't have the right talent (laughs) to do something like that. And time and patience, right? So my hats off to him. When I first saw this coming out, I was like, "I'm I'm really excited that they're doing it, but uh, darn you for beating me to it, kind of thing, you know."
1: (laughs) Well, you know, there's probably a lot of a lot of probably a lot of people out there that did kind of stuff like this, just with maybe glue and. Scissors. I mean, who knows? Um, this seems like a very kind of thing that that a kid might do, um, right. but obviously, this is done very professionally, taken to the nth degree.
0: Right, and I mean, he's such an established writer and comic book artist and things like that that uh, that you know he he definitely had the right background to to do it the right way. Sure.
1: And he's getting paid for it, so he can actually spend the time <laughs> that it would take to do something like this. I mean, imagine getting paid for something like this. Talk about a dream job. Uh, man, that would be great. Yeah. Um, let me just mention that when I look back at the original uh, teleplay of, uh, of this episode, this pilot, it's kind of a negative downer so the main thing on this is the idea that uh that gary couldn't lose his uh his ape ancestor baggage uh so he ends you know when he got his powers so then he becomes a threat to humanity and of course you could have a really cool uh conflict thing at the end where kirk has to, has to kill them uh, you know, kill him and then have all this angst and stuff. Uh, as opposed to a more positive story where Geary getting these powers as Daner refers to it in, in, in the episode it could be a wonderful thing. It could be a positive thing. Uh, so instead of hanging around to you know, take over humanity uh, he could have taken those powers and gone off to the great adventure which is exploring without uh, the traditional ship uh, limits. But they chose to go the negative route and have conflict and that kind of stuff. Now, mind you, I love the original teleplay, but ah, a lot of times stories tend to go in that route, the negative way, which generates conflict, which is more, I don't know, maybe more appealing to our uh, some some part of our human mind. But um, I'm glad that this story kind of took that negative take on what's going on and in the end turned it into a positive one and went the positive route so I like that a lot about this story Um, and it was interesting how it made me think about how what a negative path the original episode took and by the way where No Man Has Gone before is if not my favorite episode of Star Trek my second favorite Um, So I love the original story I love the episode But this story This comic Made me think about how negative the original uh, Episode was Right the whole idea Of absolute power corrupts absolutely Exactly But the thing is why was he Why was he even thinking about Taking over humanity I mean with these powers he can go off and do Amazing things that has nothing to do with humanity but he wasn't right. in – he hadn't made that leap mentally anyway. Right. But I mean it's
0: still not a very positive even, – even this story is not a positive spin on humanity in that he had to basically come to grips that he's no longer human. Right. Before he then you know, became benevolent and will go off and explore the universe in a different way. Right.
1: But isn't benevolence just another aspect of human nature? I mean, there's the, the negative side that wants to take over things. And then there's the positive side that can be smiling and saying, looking forward and positive to the, the great voyage of discovery. Um, so I'm just saying that there's, there's two sides. And, and he still had that, that, that idea of wonder, I
0: right. think.
1: At least it appears that way on his, in his face. So he did bring some humanity with him, I would like to think. But he he did finally move beyond the um, the negative bits. Right. Yep. Well,
0: so did they ever actually make a photo novel of this particular episode? And and if so,
1: did did you happen to get it since you were a fan at the time? Uh, I don't remember this one. I had what? like maybe two, and probably maybe two <laughs> novels like photo novels like this. Uh, and and okay. I really don't know... if I mean, it's possible I might still have them. But... Because um, I do have some... A couple boxes of stuff. Miscellaneous stuff from my childhood. I might still have it. Oh, but I, I'm cool. pretty sure it wasn't this one. But... Yeah. It'd be cool if I could find that. Yeah, you if should I look still it have it. I did enjoy the little
0: uh, essay or whatever at the end of this where they... Explain the history of the photo novels.
1: Um, oh, I didn't read that. I should read that.
0: Oh, you didn't read no. it? No, it was pretty good.
1: So, what's the uh, what's the four one one on that?
0: Well, basically, they're talking about before DVDs and before VHS. Right. You had one chance to watch your favorite show, and then once it was over, or your movie, your favorite movie, right. and then you know, once it stopped showing at your local theater, oh, yeah, it was gone forever. Right. Until they. You know, the comic book adaptations, Right. And then the novels, and then ultimately the photo novel, so that you could actually see the actual stills from the movie, right. but with dialogue balloons. Right. And then how that whole genre died as soon as VCRs became prominent, and you could just record your favorite episode and never have to see it again, or never have to bother reading
1: it. <laughs> right. Um, so something lost but a lot gained Um, I don't know if I mentioned this before but I was so into Star Trek when I was a kid that I used to record the episodes on audio cassettes so when we went on you know vacation, car trips whatever or just normally I could play that back again on my little portable cassette player and I could uh, enjoy the, uh, the shows, the episodes right so yeah, that was they actually. Meant, way to they, do actually that. they
0: actually mentioned that in that article. Oh, that, did they? that was that was a way that a lot of people would choose to relive their favorite episodes right. is through cassette tapes, and that uh, that there was actually a, you know, a market for that, that. That there would be people trading episodes and things like that. Oh, really? Episodes, oh, I gotta tapes. read yeah.
1: this thing. Yeah, you really need to read huh. it. It was it, it was really interesting. Well, it's kind of a precursor to audiobooks. The only thing is, obviously, there would be swatches of music (laughs) and sound effects where action was going on. And you'd have no... I mean, well, of course you knew because you memorized every word in the episode that you've seen 15 jillion times. But uh, you wouldn't have that kind of narration kind of thing going on. Right. uh, In those recordings. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Yep.
0: And then they have a couple of pictures from from uh like city at the edge of forever's audiobook or not audiobook um photo novel uh-huh. so wh- what's funny is that um a few years ago um, back when star wars the clone wars uh, movie came out so i don't remember maybe about 7 years ago um, they actually tried to bring back photo novels for that movie ah. and and i remember you know going to walmart or going to the bookstore and they would have these photo novels of all the Star Wars movies and stuff. Uh-huh. I don't know if they if they were just doing it for nostalgia or what, but uh, or I don't even know how well they sold. Right. But I I'd, I do remember they came out with them, and they were just like this, or just like the original photo novels, where like the dialogue balloons were you know square instead of round and things like that. So I don't know. Um, if I was going to ask you, since since you knew more about photo novels than I did, if that was a if that was a real movement or if uh, if it was just a one off thing, but I guess you probably don't know.
1: What photo novels?
0: Well, if there was a, a if there was going to be a resurgent a
1: few years back, I have no idea about that. But considering okay. considering how popular Star Wars was, especially the first one, I mean there was Star Wars mania back then. Um, yeah, but this was just you know just a few years ago, right? With the uh, the Clone Wars. I, I know, but yeah, but I'm back then. They were manufacturing everything that was possible uh, for Star Wars to sell them. Sure, and of course, George Lucas basically showed a whole toy industry or, or uh, maybe movie houses how much money you could make with toys and other kind of spinoff that products. I'm surprised they didn't do it earlier. H- how interesting it! You said a couple of years ago they did this for Star yeah, Wars. Yeah, when the when the Clone Wars came out, huh.
0: that was a and that, and to tell to be honest, that was the first time I've ever even seen photo novels. Oh, yeah. Well, wow. so interesting. So I just did a search on eBay for photo novel, and yeah, you can still get them. They're some of some of them are pretty cheap. You can get the the Star Trek ones for about five bucks each.
1: Oh, they still they still publish them. No, they're, you know... They're oh, so this, the this is just, this is like the eBay... At, yeah, this is eBay. The ABA, yeah. eBay side of, uh... <laughs> of Amazon. Okay. And they did come out with Where No
0: Man Has Gone Before. huh, cool. It was the second one. 7 yeah. Seven ninety five, and it could be yours. Wow!
1: I don't know. At this point in my life, I'm trying to cut down the amount of unnecessary, <laughs> uh... <laughs> Garbage I have taken on over the years, but I'm, I'm sorry, this is not garbage. Not garbage. Yeah, I watch it? I know. Sorry. Okay, so I mentioned this a little earlier, but I mean, personally, when I when I had heard the dialogue in the original episode, I thought Gary said the the rodent thing, the rodent things on Demaris. And uh, I didn't realize he said rodent. So it's like, okay, rodent. I mean, they made it very clear rodent in, in the, the, the text of this, uh, of this book, which is very cool. Thank you for letting me know that I had misinterpreted the, the dialogue. But then when they showed the creatures, I mean, didn't John Byrne basically put like kind of like a, like a lizard or an iguana kind of the creature? Yeah, they look like iguanas with with paint on their
0: face, <laughs> and, and little quills <laughs> on their back.
1: <laughs> okay, okay, so so it looked like he almost had uh, like some stock photo of lizards that he messed up or messed around with the uh, the coloring, and then there I thought it showed. I guess they could be rat-looking. I don't know. Rat-looking, really? You think so? Ah, no. They, I mean, their arms and stuff look like lizards. They look like lizards. Yeah. So, number one, I don't get why <laughs> rodent things would look like lizards. Um, but then also, it's sh- so that's my main thing. And then, and then, as far as the the poison darts, it's like it looks like there's a quill. There's a a quill of darts that's right next to this lizard-looking thing. And mm-hmm. the lizard thing has, like, like clothing on or something. Yeah, well, they're sentient. I, I know, but it's like, how are these lizard guys um, <laughs> propelling those darts? They probably have a little bow. Oh! <laughs> is that it? That is so weird. So weird. Anyway. <laughs> I just thought i'd mention it i'm just a little confused by it all i mean they don't look anything like the ge- the, the geico gecko you know they're 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 moving right. around on their on their all fours it's not like they're walking around saying car insurance okay let 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 a dart go um
0: we do see a scene there is a scene when when they're running off on two legs well and he says screen, screen.
1: yes i see that <laughs> <laughs> that is funny it's like off on the distance, so you can't see him that – I mean, you see him okay, but um, mm-hmm. that's funny. Yeah, so I was wondering, where did that
0: footage come from? Because everything else in this book came from Star Trek, but I don't remember these little creatures oh. being in Star Trek.
1: Well, well, of course not. I mean, it was like a one-sentence re- reference to them. Oh, the that's just some stock stuff. I mean, they, they probably just took some picture of a lizard and then she... – John added the clothing and the quill. <laughs> that wasn't from Star Trek. That's funny. At least I don't think so. <laughs> and it's these are these are cool uh this is this these are cool panels. I like them. I mean, you see the the purple and pink uh laser beams, phaser beams coming out of the old-fashioned um uh menagerie. Phasers, or should I say, the cage? With the little crank on it, right? I love those; those are great. <laughs> uh, so it, these are pretty involved uh, little panels that he's put together. Anyway, great job. All right, what else you got? got one this... more thing. All right, cool. And I think you probably have something to say about it too. Love seeing number one again. So they got they got a picture of number one in there, you know, Pike's first officer. Uh, Majel Barrett, and she's mm-hmm. got the, uh, the the little shock of silver, or white, in her black hair. So that's supposed to make her right. old, or older, anyway. Um, so, it was great seeing her. A- and again, Byrne continues what he tends to do with, with this character. He continues the idea that you don't need to know her name. She's number one, and that's all you need to know.
0: <laughs> yes. I love that. It was funny. Yeah.
1: Now, of course, this wasn't the only thing, uh, so I remind, I refreshed myself on some information about uh, Number One's real name, so and some other expanded universe things that we have read already. Um, like the crew, right? So there were um, Star Trek early voyages uh, where she was referred to uh, as Lieutenant Commander Robbins, right. which was interesting. And then um, there was another one where she was uh, Robin Leffler's mother? Was that what that was supposed to be?
0: Something like that, yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, and wasn't she supposed to be, like, really, in, re- in actual point of reality, some kind of uh, alien?
0: Uh, yeah, that was in, like, the New Frontier stuff, right. yeah.
1: Okay, so... You know, some really interesting uh, handling of that character in the Expanded Universe. Right.
0: But in The Crew, if you remember that miniseries, right. um, which was also done uh, by John, John Byrne.
1: Burn.
0: Yeah, I don't remember that one ever giving her a name. Exactly. And, and we, we were talking about it. that exactly. They went back
1: to no name. Right, which was cool. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, so, I mean, this was a full character. I mean, in this was multiple comics, right? So, mm-hmm. right. but he was still able to get away with not giving her a name. I love that.
0: Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. Number one. That's right. Anyway, that's my last comment. Yeah, I I just didn't care for the the skunk hair there at the end. Oh, the skunk I, hair. I don't know why. This <laughs> looks weird. Maybe because it's just so white on so, and her hair is so black. Right. Yep. But that's the easy way to show that she's a little older. Exactly.
1: And and it actually actually, actually does it does look at, it looks like realistic. Um. I mean, not, not because right, it's su- yeah. such a difference in color. Because you look at her face and she's he didn't do anything to her face. No, she's she still, she's still young. looks young. Um, but then, but then that shock of silver hair looks pretty realistic. I mean, anyway, it doesn't just look like, like a band of painted silver. I guess that's what I'm trying to say.
0: No, it's a little salt and peppery in in places where it should be. Right.
1: Okay. There
0: you go. No, it's good. I'm glad to see her. And, uh, I know for a fact she shows up later in the, um, in the continuation of the what is it, new New Visions or whatever they they called the ongoing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's in this same style. Right.
1: Cool. Very good. Okay.
0: So we'll see her again. Cool.
1: So very entertaining.
0: All right. So if that finishes up this episode, we'll go ahead and close up shop. So next week we're going to continue with the uh, photo novel theme, cool. and we'll do the the I think it's New Visions. Let me get the exact name. Okay.
1: So the first, the first issue of that one. Yeah, the first epi- the first issue
0: of that series. It was called New Visions. Uh, that episode or that issue is actually entitled "The Mirror Cracked," which is another Mirror Universe episode. Cool. Can never have too or many of those line. Yeah, no. And we, since we just finished up DC's version, oh. it'd be interesting to see another take. Cool. So we'll do that, and in addition to that issue, we'll do one of the IDW Captain's logs stories and uh we'll we'll cover the harriman episode or issue cool
1: harriman so we'll enterprise a, b
0: yeah. generations Dem- we were introduced
1: yeah. to him with demora sulu as the navigator cool okay so she so. was the navigator not the helmsman good mixing it up oh helms oh she was the helmsman. Uh, no no she was i, I mixed okay. it up sorry <laughs> cool I think Sorry, I that's great because you had mentioned that the captain's uh, log had Harriman, and it was like, "Cool, I want to see Harriman." Now, now, mind you, he was a little wimpy and unsure of himself in uh, in generations, which of course gave Kirk, old Kirk, you know, the entryway to uh, help the young'un. But it's like, right. I find it difficult to believe anybody would be to the point of being captain of a starship and not have a little more ex- little more confidence than Harriman displayed. So uh, I'm, right. I'm kind of looking forward to seeing... I'm very looking forward to seeing him actually in the role, in the captain's chair.
0: Right. In all the expanded universe stuff that I've read of him, he's always very competent. Good. So yeah. I don't know if I've read this one, but, um, but in all the novels that he was in, he's always...
1: He's, he, he's not the bumbling idiot that he <laughs> is in generations. <laughs> exactly. And, and everybody who's coming into a position of authority like that would probably have some, you know, little doubts in the back of their mind. But uh, come on, your first officer long enough, you know, by the time you get to sit in the chair, good. Okay. So I'm looking forward to it. Right.
0: You. Yeah. So we'll, we'll do those two issues next week, and uh, then I guess we'll, it'll be time to get back into some of the DC comic stuff. Good and continue that series. Volume 1. Right. Good. Exactly. All right. Well, let's close up shop and be back next week. Sounds great. Thanks, everybody, for joining us on The Review.
1: Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us